Welcome to Play, Learn, Teach. We bring early childhood educators together to ask questions about raising children in these challenging times. This episode has been sponsored by OLA. Our Certificate 3 and Diploma courses teach early childhood through the head, heart and hand. If you want to sing, dance and craft every day, talk to us about careers in early childhood education. Hello everybody. Um, Last episode we gave a brief overview of the Early Years Learning Framework's notion of becoming through the adult lens of hand. In this episode we'll be taking a deeper dive into the idea of being, where understanding being is valuing children as human beings in the present, rather than who they will be in the future. Welcome to this episode of Play, Learn, Teach podcast. If you're tuning in via Apple or Spotify, please visit igniteminds.com.au slash podcasts, where you will find additional commentary and links resources. If you scroll to the bottom of the episode, you can also ask questions and tell us your thoughts. We love hearing from you. We had a wonderful question this week from an early childhood educator. She wrote, I have a child who has been in my care since babyhood. When she was young, she showed incredible intelligence and a strong desire to learn. She is now school-aged and will be in her last year together. My concern is that she refuses to engage with any activities which she hasn't chosen for herself. She will only engage with an activity that she has introduced. And this is now crossing over to her play experiences. She cannot seem to play unless she is the director of the game. She has also become quite demanding in her friends and I am seeing them choosing one another rather than her. She's never bothered by this though. She's more surprised that her ideas were rejected. It's a total surprise to her. Also, her friends play together and she just stares, completely unable to join and with my support or even with theirs. Her family accepts this as some of her little quirks. However, I worry about moving her to prep next year. When we look at this through this idea of being, I just thought I'd draw your attention to what's happening with Asikra. They've published that being recognises the significance of the here and now in children's lives. It's about the present and them knowing themselves, building and maintaining relationships with others, engaging with life's joys and complexities and meeting the challenges in everyday life. The early years learning are not solely preparation for the future, but are also about being present. This concept of being is about valuing children as human beings in the present rather than for who they will be in the future, focusing on strengths, what children know and what they can do, and nurturing characteristics such as children's drive to learn, creativity, sense of wonder and awe, and also about acknowledging in practice that each child is unique. I thought I'd open the conversation up to you, Carol, first. I think there's so much that we can learn from this little snapshot, but what can you tell us about being present? I think it's a beautiful example because um, our educator clearly is full of love for the child and her description of the child is so clear um, that without knowing her, or I might have met her, I'm not sure. I have a good sense of what she's observed. And even though it's through her lens, where she, her lens is about concern and worry about the future, she's still able to describe the child in a very beautiful way, respectful way. That really gave me the key, uh, not knowing or seeing the child, that the child is doing what it needs to do. 
And I think that's what's so precious about the early years is that children usually do what they need to do. And it's for us adults to get over ourselves with our worries, our concerns for the future, because those are often based on fear. And um, to really look purely at the child for what it is doing and support it and nudge it uh, into possibilities that might be helpful. But the main thing is to give examples through our own behavior. So being present is absolutely vital. And it's, it's really a difficult thing for adults because we know the past, we've learned a lot, and that means we project into the future and we cloud our judgment often by our experiences of the past that maybe were negative. So when we look in the future, it entails crossing the threshold of our concerns and our fears and worries. Notwithstanding that fact, I think it is really important to acknowledge the being of the child in the present and see its future. And so we are involved in its future by the seeds we plant, but the future needs to be unclouded by our our own personal concerns and worries, but much more about the bigger picture of that child. What that child will and can become is enormous and beyond our imagination, but can we leave space for that imagination of the child? Yes, Carol. Um, so, so much of, of what you're saying is that in some ways the educator's concern about the future has has created this question, but you're not so concerned about the future for this child. Is that is that right? Yes, I'm not. I'm actually quite excited about the child because she knows what she wants, and she's very determined to do it and to do it her way. Uh, this is the beginning of uh, the strength and the survival possibilities of this child, that she will develop a mind of her own in the future. And this is the early seeding of developing a mind of her own. Uh, she's not concerned about the children um, not playing with her. She's more affected by their rejection of her fabulous idea, which I think is fantastic. Who, as an adult, doesn't experience that all the time? I've got a fabulous idea and everybody looks at me blankly, and I'm convinced that this is an amazing thing to do. Um, you often don't get resonance. So that's quite an interesting uh, reaction of hers, but she's not personally um, affected by it. So it tells me that she hasn't yet developed social sensitivity, which comes really after the change of teeth, which is one of these fabulous indications by Rudolf Steiner about development, child development, that actually the real beginning of a social development in a child's being is after teeth change and then they become much more socially sensitive and want to fit in and want to be part of the peer group and so on. So it's telling me that she's got a mind of her own and the fact that the educator says that she watches intently when other children are playing, that's how children learn. They watch intently. There's no particular emotional issue going as far as I can see by the description. The parents are lovely. They support her with her quirks, as they say, it doesn't bother me. And I think that in her time, when she's ready, she will climb out of her skin that she has now housed, she's been housed in properly. And then she will look out at the world and want to learn from others in a, in a much more um, sensitized. So I feel very comforted by 
where she's at at the moment by the description that the educator has given. I really love your perspective, Carol. It always is surprising <laughs> and so simple. Um, so, so much of, of what uh, is being, you know, this being present stuff is, is very strange to us adults. Um, we pay lots of money for books and mindfulness gurus and sometimes completely overlook that children are already in this present. And they hold so many keys to us understanding the here and now. We can overthink things or we simply just don't recognize the baggage we bring to bear in our practices. Jake, I'm just wondering whether you could tell us a bit about some of the practices you use to maintain the clarity of mind when you process your hopes and dreams for each child. I just wanted to, to back up Carol on the, the teeth changing uh, concept. It's uh, it, it might sound a bit way out, but actually I had a child lose uh, her tooth yesterday in care. Um, she's a school aged child and it was a, it was a pretty exciting moment when that little one tooth fell out. She's already lost tooth before, teeth before, but uh, this one came out, and it was it was a it was exciting celebration in the house. It's a very exciting moment, and um, the point is, I can really see in this child and my own child, who's who's also lost some teeth, that they they, they do take on gradually more of a social uh, consciousness, where these uh, children in class one and class two are looking after the little. Uh, children in my care. So I, you know, look after children from ages one through five, and then I also look after school-aged children. And, and yeah, when the teeth start coming out, that's when the school-aged children look back and see the little kids and start to help me out. So, you know, I can ask them to help wash uh, one of the little kids' hands or um, pass the, the water bottle to someone. And they do it very eagerly because they're, they're making that connection. Back to your question on, on presence and um, maintaining that clarity of mind in the family daycare setting that I run. There's, there's lots of practices. Like you say, you can, you can buy um, books and uh, link in with gurus. One practice which I've tried um, and been practicing for about six years is that before I go to, to bed at night, I, uh, I do I like a meditation, um, but just sitting quietly, peacefully. And I say good night to any of the children who have been in care that day. So any of these uh, uh, challenges that arise throughout the day, they can they can become stored in in my body, and I can carry it over to the next day, which which then clouds my interactions with the the new group that, that are in. So each night I say good night to each child by name, and have a form an image of them, saying good night. Uh, you know, we'll we'll meet again, and we'll work on that issue next time. And then I invite in the children who will be attending the following day, so they become. Uh, part I say oh, okay tomorrow I'm going to welcome uh, this child and this child and this child and I'll, I, I take in a little bit of the sense for their for their being into my headspace and uh, when I'm sleeping overnight that process of sleep starts off this uh, connection which brings me into a, a presence with those children as they enter the into the care and I found by doing this I'm already ready for who they are, you know, their being is already in my mind as I open the door to greet them. It's not, uh, I'm not surprised that they're at the door. I've been thinking of them for the past um, 12 hours and readying myself for um, who they are and how to fit them into care. And a good example of um, 
you sort of how this went wrong or and how I came into into presence with, with this particular child. Um, it was a school-aged child and we have, uh, it's already a fairly big group of little children and this school-aged child was is an extra sensitive ch child and actually um, these days the children are becoming I think more sensitive, which is wonderful. They're bringing in more messages about what's happening in the world in a, in a more sensitive light. And um, I was worried about how we would, how this child would fit into the, my care environment because I, I, you know, I had a really lovely group. It was really well established, and I was worried that this child might upset that balance. And so I was a bit apprehensive and. Um, and as the child came in, this child is very uh, moves around a lot, a bit erratic sometimes, uh, can fall over often, is still finding their place in the world uh, physically. So it can be quite um, hard to predict what's going to happen next, and that creates anxiety within myself. Uh, and so I already had sort of an apprehension about how this child would um, affect the day, like my day and the day of the, chil the other children and the, the nice environment that we had. And because this child is sensitive, they could pick up on these thoughts that I was having, this, this, this headspace that I had about this child. They could pick up on that. And when something went wrong, so the child fell over and bumped into a little child and I went out, you know, what's happened here? And immediately this child was very defensive. Um, uh, it wasn't me. I didn't do it. Uh, it was not my fault. You're always blaming me. Like went to level 15 very quickly uh, in the defensive phase. And I, and I realized that um, I had come out, not, not accusing, but I, in my head, I was already accusing, you know, it was already in my head, this assumption that this child had done something wrong. And I'd come out with that uh, mindset, even though I hadn't actually spoken anything. And so I saw immediately, wow, this is, yeah, okay, we've got to change tact here. And uh, I sat down. This is what, this is part of a practice I do anyway. I sit down so that there's, uh, I can ground myself ready to absorb uh, the child's energies, right? And, and then I ready myself to listen intently, listening deeply to what the child um, wants to say. And so I say, okay, I'm listening. When you're ready, you tell me. Uh, what happened and what's happening for you now. And um, I'm sitting still. The child is still very erratic. No, I don't like you. I hate you and screaming and, and yelling. And, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I'm still sitting. And, and then he's picking up. Okay, I, he can sense now that Jake is ready to listen. And he slowly sort of sidles over. And um, he starts to say, it wasn't me. I didn't, you know, I didn't do it. I was just standing there and then I fell over. I didn't. I didn't want to hurt anyone, and um, and I could see. Oh, I, I saw what was happening. He, it, he wasn't his fault. He, he just. He, that's just how he moves. He moves about, and as he was moving about, um, the, uh, another child was there, and they collided. It wasn't intentional, which, which maybe I had in my head. I, you know, as a accusation and that he had picked up on and so he ex expressed that it's just he doesn't have you know as much control over his body as other children he, he actually said said this and he's still uh, learning how to how to move around and I, I didn't say anything I, just, I was just listening I was intently deeply listening and this is a practice this is a, a practice of presence um, of deep listening which is actually it needs needs practice because we often already have these assumptions of uh, of other people or what they're going to say or who they are as they're being and um, that's actually an anxious anxiety uh, response so 
uh, yeah, it's, it's about flicking from that an anxious reaction to uh, a reaction of acknowledgement. So really listening, really taking in all the information and then going, and I didn't solve anything. I didn't say, okay, maybe you could move this way or maybe you could move that way or maybe we'll try and create a space. I didn't solve anything. I just said, I hear you, John. I hear that, yeah, you didn't mean to hurt this child. Um, I see that as you move, that's the way you move. And unfortunately, this, this, this thing happened. Let's go and check on the other child to make sure she's okay. And then um, we'll, we'll move forward from here. And there was such an aha moment for me because I could see that this child could tell that I was listening. I was a listener. And he then confided in me from that day on and he would come to me before anything uh, would escalate because he knew that I would listen. And so if something was happening that he wasn't happy with, maybe the noise level, sensitive child, maybe the noise level of the little kids was getting too high in one space. Uh, he'd come and say, Jake, it's too noisy. You know, I could tell he was going to overreact, but he told me first because he knew I was listening. And then I would come in and I would uh, try and manage that situation to, uh, to de-escalate it uh, before it became a problem. But the point is, yeah, it, this practice of deep listening and acknowledgement and respecting the child is, is a, a spiritual practice, if you like. It's a practice of presence and it's a, it's a transaction of energies and information. And when uh, a child is heard, they feel seen in the, in the deepest sense of their being. This episode has been sponsored by dragonflytoys.com.au. Play experiences that are beautiful, enchanting, strong and safe, environmentally friendly and fairly traded. Oh, that's a really lovely story. Can I add an aha story from my experience? I was working as an assistant in an early childhood centre and away who was very, seemed to be really angry all the time. And whatever the kind of communal activity we would do, he would be very uh, defiant in a vocalic and noisy way. So if we sat together in a circle, he'd go and pick up his chair and turn it with his back to everybody and slam it down and sit with his back to everybody. It's where you think, oh, everything's so lovely. Why does he come and spoil it all? You know, everybody's shocked and no one's together anymore because of his behavior. So I could see the lead teacher really struggling with him. And uh, then one day he just couldn't take what was going on and he ran into the corner and he had a tantrum. He screamed his lungs out and there was no way of doing anything in the class with uh, all this loud noise. And I looked at him and this was my aha moment and I will always be so grateful to this boy. I was looking at him and I realized suddenly I was actually in his body. I felt what it was like. And I realized that as hard as it is for us to bear hearing him, he's right inside of that. And he's trapped and he can't get out. And just that moment, and I think, Jake, what you said is very much you realized, oh, hang on a minute, there's something going on in this boy, and I have a connection to that, but I need to go into that. So when I realized that uh, in a very deep way, in a felt way, how it feels to be in that experience, I came to the lead teacher and I said, I would love to just uh, spend time with him. 
Uh, so I won't be helping you in the circle or anything like that, but I'm going to be um, kind of at his back and behind him. And what I learned with him is that when you're in a state like that, where you feel like the world is kind of your enemy, uh, it's not uh, a good idea to confront the children eye to eye, but really to get up on the side. I sat next to him. I showed not much interest in him, but just sat with him. And I took an interest in what was going on on the floor. And fortunately, I found a little ant walking along and I started to intensely watch it. Then I followed it and the little boy started to come with me. And eventually we found ourselves outside looking at what the ants were doing in the grass. So there was absolutely no communication between us that was verbal, but there was an inner sense of being together. And over a few weeks, it took, it took time. We started to talk together, play together, do things together. And um, in the beginning, I would just kind of bump him just softly with my shoulder. We'd kind of, our bodies would connect. And I would say, oops, sorry. And um, I could see that he quite liked that. He liked that. So making physical contact without eye to eye, I felt was really important. Anyway, I discovered that the little boy was going through so much torment in a way. He had a new brother. His parents were separating. And he also had asthma. So... I was able to develop a therapeutic story for him and he changed quite dramatically. But he was my aha moment and I've never gone back from that time. Uh, I, uh, it's now for me such a practice to go inside the boots or the shoes of the being that I'm with and get a deep feeling of where they might be. So let go of whatever I'm carrying. Jake and Carol, your both of your perspectives are just, um, you know, really quite different and and uh what you're saying is you know this practice of you know jake sitting on the floor and being grounded you know being at eye level um allowing the presence of this child to really enter your consciousness and and carol you're you know really walking in in the shoes of this person enables you to be present you know you can undo all of your head stuff all of your thinking all of your thinking about what might be happening and just be present and and learn to feel and uh, be absorbed in what what might be happening for this child without judgment is uh, such a beautiful thing. I just wanted to um, change the perspective a little bit too, because I, I think what you're saying is so true, but I also I think it is a very difficult practice for us educators to, to be mindful and to be present. You know, because I think, you know, there is another dynamic in that story, which many of us would recognize. And that's the dynamic when, when play falls apart because someone wants to set the rules or everybody wants to set the rules and the rule setting becomes the game. And that can be exasperating, you know, sometimes a case of too many chiefs and other times, you know, the submissives just get fed up with the rules of the game changing so often to benefit the loudest voice, you know, so the play breaks down. Um, I just wanted to ask you, Carol, um, often adults are very poor at cooperation games. We can be good at team sports and where, where the rules and the goals are closely aligned with our own personal objectives, you know, but I'm, I'm wondering if the mm -hmm. children really need to be cooperating at this point in time or whether the, the concept of cooperation is just developmentally appropriate at all. Yeah, it's a very uh, interesting question. Uh, and I think about, you know, the expression we have about parallel play um, between young children, that they're kind of sitting next to each other and playing their own things and every now and then might make contact with each other. But 
it's more about their own talking about the will again and their own intentions that's that drives their learning and their curiosity and that takes you know it really does um, come to fruition at the end of let's say six years old though there's a there's no kind of cutoff point it's a gradual process of changing nonetheless I think you know it uh, we have in the first six seven years the opportunity to create a foundation for life and the foundation for life is is very much based on our being as adults and what we do together and as you say yes uh, we have we struggle to <laughs> collaborate and cooperate I've run so many team development exercises where Actually, nobody wins, but if everybody takes care of each other, the whole group wins, that kind of thing. And um, people have aha moments as adults. Oh, my gosh, yeah. If we actually work towards the whole, everybody gets the benefit of whatever our goals were. So uh, it's really about providing experiences for the children where they can have moments during the day where they're doing something collaboratively or cooperatively and again not being coerced or anything but it's such fun to do something together whatever it is it could be even jumping in puddles of water and enjoying the splashing I mean it can be as a natural a thing as that but really allowing the joy of the of the mess and the water and the, the sparkle of life that's happening to um, be part of a whole group experience. Um, so it can be that disorganized in a way where you haven't actually organized it. Or you can do something like sing a little song, do your circles. A circle is just a wonderful picture of collaboration. And again, bearing in mind that when children are ready, they come, and when they're not, they actually will play on their own. I've seen that in Jake's big circles in the park when he's had his playgroup, where there are children of, of every age around there, and he starts singing his song about, come, let's make a circle. And all the children who feel that connection are just drawn to make the circle. And then the younger children, and you can see that they're not that aware, uh, slowly become aware, slowly crawl towards the circle and then become part of the whole. So, um, yes, I think it's so important to provide lots of experiences where we do stuff together, but without the sense of coercion and control, but rather inviting. Oh, I have a little space there. Would you like to come and fill that space? That space needs a little body like yours. Uh, rather than say, now, Johnny, it's time for you. We're doing a circle. You can't play out there anymore. You need to join us. That's what we're doing. Does that um, give some sense of the notion of how we can set up a kind of foundation for your whole life, your whole life experience just in the first six, seven years? Yes, beautiful, Carol. I, I What I'm hearing is that you know these adult ideas like cooperation and like um, working together um, is is not so important when you're being present with children. When there's a group of children, they are already in immersed in in a in a play, and um, and we just need to let them be themselves without um, creating environments where they need to negotiate their their ideas in this in this social context. I just got a question for you, Jake. Um, reflecting on on the scenario that we were given. Um, and thinking about um, how we would, you know, revalue children as human beings in the present, rather from, rather than for who they are and who they will be in the future. 
How, what would you be building into your weekly program to support this child and why? So I uh, am very uh, keen on the respectful approach. It's called uh, uh, RIE or Resources for in Infant Educators. And there's a respectful parenting uh, approach where um, is grounded in respect for the child and and who they are and it's it's, it's about uh, listening deeply but it's also about um, creating respectful boundaries too f because we teach respect by um, demonstrating respect and and you can do that by um, f setting boundaries with children so uh, a positive boundary, so I won't let you hit that child, or I'm not going to let you sabotage this story. I'm, you know, I'm I'm here to, for for everyone. We're we're a social group, and so we need to maintain this uh, feeling, the sense that we're all connected and together. But at the same time, you're respecting that child and and where they are at that moment, and engaging with them deeply through through active listening, and uh, deep acknowledgement. Of, of where they are. It can be a challenge for the educators, of course, um, to maintain that balance of the social group and then the individual need. But but with all the, the routine of the family daycare practice that I have, uh, everyone knows what's going to happen at what time and they can, they can tap into that rhythm. So uh, I did have actually the same experience here with a school-aged child and uh, we were going to the park. So we were going on an excursion to the park. So it's an only child, a school-aged child, was like, no, I don't want to go to the park. I'm playing here in, you know, I'm playing my game here. I don't need to come. Uh, and I had to say, well, look, we're, <laughs> we're all going to the park. Um, you know, I have four little children. They're getting their helmets on now. Uh, we're all going together. You'll have to come with us to, to the park. I'm sure we'll find some great things to do there. When we come back, there'll be time for getting back into that game later. But right now we're all getting ready to go to the park and we'll be leaving in 10 minutes. You know, <laughs> creating that, that boundary um, was really important. And once that child uh, established the routine and rhythm, so we, did, we went to the park at the same time every day, they knew when they could slot in their alone time, their time for playing uh, in, the, in the corner there. And when they, so when we did go to the park, they knew what was happening. They knew what to expect, uh, even down to the quite, quite fine details. So there's a time after we've had lunch all together, we all have lunch together and we wait for everyone to finish lunch. And then there's a little space, like about 20 minutes where the children have a play. And it's not a big play, it's just a little play. And and as adults, we might remember what that means. Um, don't build up a whole cubby house and expect to play there for an hour and a half. It's just like, let's quickly get into character, uh, play a game, and then Jake's going to call us in for a story and, and a nap. And, and they knew what that window was because it was the same little window of play every day. And so then they can map their day out, you know, uh, do what they want to need to do uh, in terms of play. And by providing those windows, then they know exactly what's what's coming and then they can prepare for, for other times, just like adults do. So this respectful practice is actually just uh, looking at what we expect as adults. So we know that we've got a meeting at 9.30, which probably means that we should get ready at 9 o'clock, uh, which means we should be up <laughs> out of bed at eight o'clock and um, so we can do the things that we need to feel ready for that meeting at 9 30. To be, have a meeting sprung on us uh, at 10 past eight in the morning after getting up at 8 a.m. that's that's a bit rough and uh, you might get some protests about that 
Um, but to have, uh, you know, we all agree probably about 24 hours notice that we know what's going to happen next and that helps us move into the um, into the next moment uh, fluidly. Uh, so the, the routine and rhythm is very important. But, uh, but the other things that we do, we do ac uh, participate in active listening throughout the day. So the circle time is a time we all come together. And within the circle time, we have songs. But the funny part is that um, the children always tell me a little story about something. Maybe we're doing a song about apples. And they'll, uh, someone will always chime in with, oh, I like red apples, I like green apples, I like blue apples. And uh, they'll, they'll chime in and that's the time when they can have their, their moment or they might say, oh, on the weekend, yeah, we went and bought some apples. But at the same time, if I'm singing a song, the leaves are green, the apples are red, they hang so high above our heads, that sort of song. If, if someone was to chime in with, Jake, I like red, I like blue apples, can you do, whilst I'm singing, then I'd say, oh, can we just let me do the song and you can tell me afterwards. And I try not to even break my song. I sort of look at them with a, just hang on, you know, I can talk with them whilst I'm singing without breaking song and give them the nod that just wait a little bit. And then, yeah, cause that's, that's, uh, that's part of setting the boundary of when we can engage in um, those one-on-one -on -one moments. The other moment is of course at lunchtime. I love lunchtime with all the children. We all sit together at the same time at the big table and we all eat together and um, we wait until everyone's finished before getting down. Um, uh, it's just part of a, a practice of being connected at that point. And some great stories come out at lunchtime. I wish I'd, I'd film all of them and put them together because some funny things come out at lunch and it becomes quite uh, enjoyable. And to have that uh, laughter and joy whilst eating is a wonderful, um, healthy practice. The other moment is through storytelling. And Carol mentioned this earlier that Carol created a healing story for that child, the aha moment child. And uh, there's a great book called Healing Stories for Challenging Behavior by Susan Perot. And the wonderful thing about this book is there's prescribed stories. You know, Susan has written stories for light fingers, for children who might um, pinch things from your house or, or for children who uh, refuse to engage in play. There's all kinds of stories in there. But the main emphasis of the book is that as an educator or parent, you can create, you can, you can custom make a healing story for uh, a child and a particular challenging behavior. And there's a little formula, you know, there's, there's a few, there's a bit of repetition in there. Uh, there's the, the rule of threes in, in there and um, coming to uh, a sense of a conclusion in a, in a healing way, in a way that's being uh, readily absorbed by the listener and you can do that with a child with a particular challenging behavior and that story if told during the day with maybe with some props it can it doesn't have to be at a set time like we've got a story time it can be at any spontaneous moment throughout the day you can just be in conversation and and dig into a story or oh, when I was a child you know children love that when I was a child this happened they absolutely love it and uh, so those healing stories um, are really quite powerful because they, they really go into the child, they you know, absorb through the head, into their being, and over the, overnight that will be absorbed into, their, into, their, into the deepest part of their being. And then you'll slowly see uh, the transformation happening. And the wonderful thing that Carol will know as well is that the child will then start telling stories. They might start expressing it back in in story theme and uh we had a great story this week where this school-aged child um 
was setting up a like a, a story scene. It was like a, a farm place and a building and uh, lots of animals in there. And I could tell that they wanted to be engaged in the story, you know, story making process rather than just me telling stories. So I looked at the the scene and I said, oh, today we're the story's going to happen. I don't even know what the story is. And it was a totally spontaneous story. I invited the fire fairies to come in and um, help me tell the story, you know, through through words. But I also, so I didn't, I literally did not know what story I was going to tell. I just looked at the scene and found a character and, and said, once upon a time, and then hope for the best. And what happened was, uh, yeah, the children helped me name the characters in the story. They, uh, I left space for them to say, oh yeah, that character's going to go over there. And then all I did was to frame it in this, in this way. So, you know, introduce the characters. Um, there was a little journey that someone had to go on. There was a repetition of one of the funniest lines that I've come up with for a while. In the end, there was a conclusion and all the children were in hysterics. So again, there was a laughter and joy. And there was, there was, there was a bit of a, uh, a moral to the story in there somewhere and which was great but most of all the children were engaged especially the school-aged children they loved it uh, they were engaged in, in the whole part of it and um, it was a collective story that was told at the time. So what I heard from Jake right now is so much about what he was saying about respectful parenting and listening to the children and it's really such a challenge for educators to change their focus where they thought they were delivering a program to meet outcomes according to some external kind of framework. And we know that the framework is a sound one, but it's external. So to make the framework an inner framework and to not deliver a program, but to meet the children where they are and where their interests are and to have respect and interest in them. And I think everything that Jake describes, he's not delivering a program, and yet you can hear he's doing storytelling circles, play, construction. There are just so many things happening, but it's all built on his relationship to the children, not to a program. And he has these wonderful insights and helps through Susan Perrow and RIAE. We always got these wonderful helpers along our journey to inspire us and keep us on track. But I think that is significant for me. As long as we're delivering to something external to us, we're going to have our um, focus uh, distracted from the actual children with every day. This episode has been sponsored by Ignite Minds. We teach play-based learning from within our nourishing homes under the family daycare umbrella. Inspired educators join our team. This podcast was produced by The Jones Collective, thejonescollective.com.au. Chat to us today about your podcast. <laughs>